0: Welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Alley. I'm super excited for this episode. Though to be real, I'm always excited when I get to spend some time with you wonderful, food-loving listeners. Today we're talking with Clan Garcia, who published a book called Food Holidays Philippines and runs a travel company called Jeepney Tours, based in the Philippines. We're going to be talking about food tourism this episode, and I'm literally bouncing in place here. This is going to be about two things that I greatly, really love. Travel and food. So the story is, I picked up Food Holidays last year, a year after it came out in 2016. And if you're listening to this podcast, you legit need to get a copy of this book, try to find it online, because there's nothing else right now that comes anywhere close to it. And I say that honestly because, as someone who has a very big collection of both food and travel books, I can say that nothing's been written about the Philippines in this particular way. And because it's sort of a travel compendium, it's a series of essays uh, with some recipes and um, a travel itinerary, basically, Packed into one book. It's just something you can't afford to miss out on if you are planning on a trip to the Philippines, specifically because you're interested in food. And you know, as someone who's worked in the hospitality and travel industry for over 10 years, basically all my adult life, like since I came to Canada, it's something that I can relate to really well. And reading through the different essays that are in this book, you really feel and Hear and see and almost taste the different regional foods and specialties that people who are from those places uh, talk about in this book. And, you know, one thing I know for sure is that food in itself is inescapably a part of why people travel. Because, I mean, everyone needs to eat. And so many people, especially in these last 10 years or so, make That act of going someplace to eat to experience that taste, the ambiance, the whole environment surrounding food and travel experiences, it's a very big driver as to why people spend money on places. And that also underlines the economic power in recognizing just how much we can tap into food itself as a a reason for traveling. And as a concierge in downtown Toronto, my job was basically to recommend places to eat and drink and visit in Toronto, both for visitors and locals who wanted to have this like staycation experience, something that I enjoy a lot too. And um, I don't know, it's just that seeing firsthand how much people value that, that experience, that is always either bookended or starts off with a great meal or a great, you know, drink out on a patio or up on a rooftop lounge, it's, it sets the mood so much. And I understand why people yearn for those kinds of experiences because, you know, food is never just about food. It's always a story about the people who make it, about the place you're eating it in, about the history that goes into what brought that particular dish or ingredient from its origins to your plate. I guess all of these things have kind of come together a bit recently for me, uh, now that I am also very happy to share that I am a food tour guide in downtown Toronto with a company called Sabre Toronto. Kind of my dream job. Basically, what we do is take small groups of guests through the different neighborhoods of the city, eating our way through Toronto, while we learn about the history of those different neighborhoods and about the people who live there and the foods that they produce. I like to think there's nowhere else as diverse because, to be honest, it's a lot easier for restaurants to break into the scene here than compared to, say, someplace like New York. And you can't really ask for a better audience of, you know, people who are Foodies, people whose palates are so open and ready to try different types of food, than Toronto, because over half of the people who live here are born someplace else. Anyway, so all that is to say that I live and breathe food and travel, and naturally, I just needed to know what this intersection between food and tourism looks like in the Philippines. So uh, we're going to cover quite a bit today. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get to it.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of your uh, podcast show. I'm Clang Garcia and I have multiple personalities. And uh, I'm a tour operator. I'm a publisher. I'm a wanderer. And uh, I continuously uh, educate myself in learning about the rich culinary heritage of the Philippines. Then I had the opportunity to uh, work with uh, Mabuhay, the in-flight magazine of Philippine Airlines. After that, uh, I became a Philippine media representative for emphasis. They're like one of the biggest in-flight media publishers that handles international airline titles like Cafe Pacific, Singapore Airlines, British Airways. So I worked with them for 10 years. So from Mabuhay magazine, I got an exposure, bigger exposure in the world of international media where I had the opportunity to produce in-flight TV for Philippines, it's a Philippine travel show. So basically that's um, my background. I just merge all the wonderful experiences that I do. I find joy in designing and crafting special tours around the Philippines. And for KLANG, all of this comes together in
0: food holidays, a book that won Best in the World at the 2017 Gourmand World Cookbook Awards.
1: So Food Holidays is actually uh, born out of passion. It's a pioneering guide on culinary heritage tours around the Philippines. And because I'm a tour operator, I want to uh, promote the Philippines as a culinary destination. So the book will uh, guide you to travel around the Philippines, finding the most authentic regional dishes, and it's already itinerary-based. I filtered it, I ran, run everything, so all you have to do is follow the trail in one book.
0: And because the story about writing this book really begins with their travel company called Jeepney Tours, I
1: asked Klang to tell us a little more about it. Um, Jeepney Tours actually, for me, it encapsulates the cultural icon, the jeepney. When people talk about the jeepney, there will always be stigma and negative connotation about it. But, she says, If you study our history, the jeepney is more than that. Prior to American colonial period, Filipinos were used to uh, seeing um, Carabao cart drawn carriages.
0: And when Americans brought over thousands of these utility jeeps, Like in the hundred thousands, shipped over from the continental US to the Philippines during World War II. Filipinos saw the jeepney as progress, as something that would help local farmers do things like quickly transport fruit and vegetables from faraway fields into town. Remember, horses aren't native to the Philippines, and so this kind of land transport really was revolutionary for people who lived in rural areas.
1: The first time for the Filipinos to see a four-wheel drive is basically during the war, World War II, when there was like uh, more than 100,000 casualties after the war.
0: A war that, I have to note, required Filipinos to fight and ultimately sacrifice their lives
1: for the Americans who maintained colonial rule over the country. It was very devastating, but you can never dampen the Filipino spirit. So for me, the Jeepney en- encapsulates the Filipino spirit of resiliency, entrepreneurship, artistry, ingenuity, humor, finding humor in the midst of devastation. So we do a lot of creative tours around the Philippines. It's easy to book a package to Palawan, to Boracay, and all that. That's easy, you can find that online. But what I specialize in is promoting cultural tourism
0: these character traits of resiliency, entrepreneurship, artistry, ingenuity and humor she just knew that this had to be at the center at the core of the company she made like guiding principles to create the kinds of travel experiences that put the stories of Filipinos they met in those communities at the front and center for me as a balikbayan As someone who finally is starting to see just how much my own identity is inextricably tied to my experiences growing up in the Philippines, this kind of travel has so much potential, and almost screams to be shared with other people who are also looking for ways to connect with
1: their culture and their roots. I grew up in the kitchen of my grandmother. And I know the process of cooking from scratch, appreciating the integrity of ingredients and uh, the slow food process. Filipino dishes never uh, you know, fast food, it's a slow food. And the beauty of our food changes depending on the season. And you have meals on weekdays, you have special meals on Sunday, you have different one on Holy Week, uh, Christmas, and all that, so that's the beauty of it.
0: this beauty for for foods that are seasonal, that are consumed in the land that they're grown in, is something that you can see and really kind of feel in food holidays. And for me, being that immersed, you know, like feeling you're actually there, is the hallmark of a great travel book. In the province of Bulacan, an hour or two north of Manila, Klang shows us what to expect on a tricycle food tour of Malabon, famous for its pancit and kind of like a seaside port town. She also shows us what centuries-old recipes from Malolos, another town in that same province, Bulacan, what it can tell us about the first Philippine Republic of Emilio Aguinaldo. Very historically accurate stuff. South of Manila, in the provinces of Laguna, Quezon, and Batangas, you can listen to the storytellers of a town called San Pablo, explore a coconut plantation, and wander around Lucban, which is a real foodie city. I don't even mind using that term for this. In Lucban, they have this other regional variant of pancit called habhab, wrapped in banana leaves, and those banana leaves become your de facto plate. While you walk around, you can maybe have a side of longganisang lukban, or maybe not even a side, like find some place to sit
1: and enjoy the Longanisa.
0: All of this is stuff that you can do in one weekend, according to Klang's suggestions.
1: All the contents of food holidays are actually my tour packages. It's categorized into three sections. Day trips from Manila, Overnight food trips and then three delicious days. Probably I'll just give you a random of my favorite uh, destinations, one of which is Bicol. I love Bicol because of the diversity of attractions and intensity of flavors. When we look at food, I try to dissect every ingredient and process. Like if you're familiar with terroir,
0: the term the that's often used to describe to wine the and the region the that the grapes that for that particular bottle so. of wine are grown in.
1: When I went to Bicol, I realized that the Philippine cuisine has terroir expression in terms of food. When I was at the foot of my own volcano, I was doing an exploration. And in her travels, Klang found an example of this terroir
0: in Filipino food in a dish called pinangat something that you can only find in Biquel. It's
1: made of freshly harvested taro leaves. And then there are like healing ingredients like lemongrass, garlic, ginger, and all that. You pound it all together, cook it in coconut milk, and i wrap it and tie it in young palm leaves. As I go back to the terwak culture, I talked to the maker and basically asked, where do you harvest the taro leaves? I want to see it we did a walk and apparently they harvest it at the foot of mayon volcano so the pinangat dish the essence and the flavors will only be unique to bicol albay province in particular and that's something to be proud of and uh, they they also use uh, i forgot to mention they also use chili so there's that beautiful um, medley of flavors and for me That pinangat is an expression of terwak culture because you can never recreate Mayon volcano.
0: Meaning that no place else in the world, literally, can have the same geographical features, the same climate, the same amount of rainfall or humidity as this particular area where the taro leaves are grown. Few volcanoes, in fact, are as active as Mayon. Like, I remember seeing photos from the last time it erupted, a minor one, back in January. If you consider the minerals and the salts that are present in that soil, as volcanic as it gets, and in the streams that dot the foothills of the Mayon volcano and its vicinity, this is the stuff that feeds the coconut trees and the chilies and the taro leaves and the lemongrass and the ginger and the fish that go into this dish, the pinangat, you quickly realize just how special it is. Each ingredient, to some degree, borrows its flavors and its distinct taste, its terroir, from the roots that run very, very deep in Bicol's soil. It reminds me of the Native American technique of growing squash, corn, and beans together in the same garden plot, something called the Three Sisters Technique. And of dishes that spring from that, like succotash, where those vegetables go into a stew, and just harmonize like they were always meant to be. Some things just fit perfectly. The clan's work in culinary tourism reaches really far and wide. In the province of Sarsaguan, technically still a part of the Bicol region. Klang got the chance to work on a project that went even beyond the unique foods of Bicol.
1: I was hired a consultant by the Canadian International Development Agency and Asian Development Bank. They had the budget to help the poorest provinces grow through tourism, so I was hired a consultant to do the product development and marketing. Klang also reminds us that. Not all destinations in the Philippines are culinary destinations. Bicol is priceless. In, Bicol is really priceless. So being a culinary destination, I just anchored it on that culture and created the tour package. So one of which is um, I tap the local communities. Basically, I want to help the grassroots. And this desire to
0: tap into grassroots communities. I'm so happy to see more and more people doing this now. It's got effects that, like the roots of those vegetables
1: that grow at the foot of the Mayon volcano, run very deep. I want to connect the grassroots level to be part of the tourism supply chain. Because for me, if you make that happen and you make their life comfortable while celebrating their local culture, that's when you know that tourism works. That's the only time you know that uh, economy is growing, when you help the poorest of the poor grow. give them dignity to earn something so here it is again that
0: concept of providing dignity for people who live at or close to the brink of poverty people who for a very long time earned very little and whose skills and intimate knowledge of farming fishing and land stewardship has been as i've now come to learn vastly underutilized
1: so going back the tour packages that I asked them to uh, bring out and cook their heritage dishes that's so when I asked the tourism officers there what are your attractions here they said not not na- nothing I said there can be na it- it's impossible to have nothing what do you have in the coastal area and then the tourism officer said we have sea urchin we have sea grapes that's it that's it I want to see it. I want to see how do you get sea urchin, how do you get sea grapes. So now we are doing a package of sea grapes harvesting, sea urchin harvesting, so uni all you can. And then we ask the local communities to prepare heritage dishes on board a floating bamboo raft in the middle of Azure Sea. So for me, that's priceless. I'd say so. I mean,
0: just think about that. You can now travel to Bicol indulge in as many sea urchins as you can possibly handle while you're on a floating bamboo raft in the middle of this impossibly blue sea, lunching with other travelers who like to eat and who the local villagers have prepared some of the regional specialties for.
1: For me, the the definition of luxury tourism should change. It shouldn't be limited to staying in opulent properties. It's also all about uh, enriching experiences, while at the same time you know that you're able to uh, leave something to the community by just having fun. I don't just go there for food, I want to make sure everybody's involved.
0: Now I want to take a minute here to reflect on Clang's perspective and why it matters in the context of tourism in the Philippines. The thing is, for Filipinos in the upper middle to higher income classes, meaning the people who have enough disposable income and aren't worried about the day-to-day. For those folks, when you plan on splurging for a trip, that splurge, for many people, means something like either a nice air-conditioned villa by the beach or maybe going to Hong Kong Disneyland. They want to go someplace nice, but keep a certain level of comfort. And for many people, spending their hard-earned cash and vacation days on What's still typically seen as kind of lowly rural areas just doesn't make sense, unless you make it matter to them in a different way, in a way that personally affects them and in a way that aligns with their lifestyle habits and their choices. In other words, if we can redefine luxury, quote-unquote, as the luxury of savoring and enjoying the indigenous foods that really are fast disappearing in the Philippines in the countryside. Those enriching experiences for Klang and for other people who advocate for sustainable tourism, this kind of approach could work to benefit both sides equally. This is why I'm super excited by the fact that Bernard Romulo Puyet, a much respected public service official and former head of the Department of Agriculture, was just this month in May 2018 named the new head of the Philippine Department of Tourism. It really is exciting times. You know, sometimes we as Filipinos, I guess, don't really know the, the bounty of right. what we have Correct. in our backyards. Correct. And since I moved to Canada, I've been working in the hospitality and tourism industry. Oh, I talk with uh, tourists who come and then they want oh, yeah. to, uh, usually they want to go on like a uh, tourist to Niagara wine region, oh, which yeah, is one right. of our closest mm-hmm. kind of terroir specific yeah, yeah. ones. and. I guess to me the reason why these types of questions arose about okay so what does food tourism look like in the philippines mm-hmm. now is because you know i've i've kind of been exposed a little bit to people who go to a certain destination because they don't just want to taste the food they want the experience mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. able to to meet right. these people and so that's why i thought like mm-hmm. filipinos are some of the most hospitable people mm-hmm. around right and right. I I hope that a lot more people are able to see that. Mm. So, um, you know, going from there, I wanted to ask you, like in in the the many years that you've worked as a tour operator and in the tourism industry, what are some of the biggest sort of takeaways that you've learned after working with, um, you know, like people in Bicol when they say, oh ma'am, we don't have any specialties, for," but you have to kind of like ask them more. (laughs) Mm. We
1: have Bahia culture and you have that uh, social class hierarchy so if you talk to some people on that level mm-hmm. they will have that kind of mentality so what you can do is empower them mm-hmm. empower them bring them up you know talk to them in a level that you know take them where you want them to be in everywhere you go you have to humble yourself because you have to be nobody whenever you talk to anyone especially to those people who knows more of their culture than you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you're the master, you're the expert, show it to the world. So you have to humble yourself and find a way to establish a relationship because in the absence of that, I don't think you can connect and get something out of them.
0: These are truths that look simple from the outset, but in the process of breaking free from old mindsets, something that I know I've had to do, it's a truth that bears repeating it gets very personal to the core of me to realize that the societal structure that I myself had lived in for a very long time still has this one simple truth to learn and to carry out. Because the truth is, we lack respect in many ways for our fellow Filipinos and for the country that we come from. Whether you're living in the Philippines or outside of the country, and I guess for me, the only place to start is with a straight shot of humility. So I asked
1: Klang, how do other people go about that? Uh, probably we should start veering away from the hiyak culture because it's about time to compete. Compete by merely celebrating our own culture. No one can uh, promote it best than us. No one will speak best for us than our own. We don't even have much budget for marketing as a country you know to promote culinary tourism so you cannot blame the government forever for that all you have to do is do your own share i guess what does food tourism look like in the
0: sense that when did it start becoming recognized as as food tourism as like a specific subset of not just you know people going to the beach or people going on
1: vacations like actually i don't even know eh. I don't even know when. Probably there's just curiosity. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I don't know if you've heard about Madrid Fusion Manila. Mm -hmm. So that's like one of, Madrid Fusion is like one of the biggest uh, gastronomy events in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the Department of Tourism brought it, I think two years ago to the Philippines Mm -hmm. and uh, got the rights to make it Madrid Fusion Manila. Mm -hmm. So two years ago, the Department of Tourism asked the you know, different tour operators to come up with the um, culinary tour packages for international gastronomy media because they're going to invest to bring in international media including uh, itinerary for the chefs. There are tour operators who are like more than 30 years, 50 years in the business. Nobody has a product on culinary tourism. My name came about because they know that I'm a foodie and really, uh, I was already putting together culinary um, tour packages, even if the demand is not as high as compared to uh, beach holidays. You know, but there's fulfillment and joy in it. Basically that's what happened, nobody has a solid uh, tour product. So when I submitted what I have, the Department of Tourism approved it. And normally, they have to have an accredited tour guide to go in an official tour. So when the Department of Tourism said, "Um, so it's going to be the tour guide, I said, I don't know. You need a tour guide, but this one's a very specialized one. So the Department of Tourism said, you're the one who created that, do the guiding. (laughs) So I started doing the guiding myself. So basically, if I may just share, can I share the itinerary? Absolutely,
0: I would love to hear.
1: Yeah, so uh, I handle the different international gastronomy media from Europe, Asia, America, and all that. The itinerary design is because I was only given two days. So if you only have two days, where will you take them? I took them to uh, Bulacan and Pampanga because uh, budget-wise, I I can only travel by land. So I took them to uh, Bulacan and Pampanga are actually very rich. Bulacan used to be the, uh, in 1970, it's the rice granary of the Philippines, and they have very rich farm life. And then um, I brought them to Malolos and opened an old ancestral house that was built since uh, 1500s. So I asked them to uh, prepare their heritage dishes. This was an ancestral house where Jose Rizal has a history of visiting. The dishes that were prepared are actually um, from their Ascendero landlords where they learned the cuisine by hiring cocinero de campanilla of the friarless these are like the cooks of the Spanish friars from Intramuros okay. So if you look at their dishes quite different normally we have lumpia mm-hmm. but what they serve is uh, lumpian castilla it's basically lumpia it's a lumpia roll but what's inside is ground beef with chickpeas, garbanzos, and then egg. And then they have this um, inipit na kesong puti sa bangus na kinilaw. Kinilaw na bangus na inipit sa kesong puti.
0: Just to like that. So it's milkfish.
1: It's a milkfish. And then... So was it milkfish
0: wrapped around fresh cheese? Or was it milkfish that was covered in fresh cheese? Either way, definitely unconventional. And a bit of a tongue twister. Kinilaw na bangus na inipit sa kesong puti. Try saying that five
1: times. The milkfish wraps the kesong puti. Okay. okay. The milk fish is kinilaw. Okay. So it's uh, cooked in a liquid fire using vinegar and spices. Mm-hmm. I was blown away with uh, the flavors. And then I did the cooking demo of hamon bulakenya. Hamon bulakenya is basically the process of inasnan. na is basically salting. That's our fermentation process back in the days when we didn't have refrigeration. So you put that in an earthen jar for three days and then after that, you know, that's how you cook it. Parang buro. Parang buro, no? But normally they added sugar because they were ahead of Bacolod and Iloilo by a hundred years in terms of having sugar cane. So they put uh, sugar on top and then, um, well, they just add fire on top of it. It's like torching, torching everything. So that's the jamón bulacenia. Amazing. I didn't even know this style
0: of wet-cured ham or jamón existed.
1: That's a very old process. That's a pre-colonial cuisine. Mm -hmm. But when the Spanish friars were here, they liked it because there's familiarity with the flavor of Mm jamón. So uh, they just added wine into it.
0: So this hamon, in its original version, was basically chunks of pork that were put into a clay pot with some salt and some cooked rice that, you know, was left to sit out overnight. With temperatures that easily reach upwards of 30 degrees in the Philippines, natural fermentation kicks in and pretty quickly starts preserving the meat. This was the pre-colonial method of preserving pork.
1: After the Spanish Revolution, the people from Malola celebrated that liberation by removing all the Spanish ingredients and then served it to the people. So it's a very rich story. And then, ah, and many stories, so I just categorize it. I
0: love chatting with Klang, and of course, I wanted to hear the stories. Next, in the province of
1: Pampanga. And then uh, we moved to Pampanga. We spent the night in Pampanga. Of course, I took them to de uh, Dutung of Chef Cloud Tayag. And de Dutung, for those who don't
0: know, is one of those very special places in the Philippines where regional cooking really, really shines.
1: Because Claude Tayag is also uh, another culinary champion in Pampanga and he really presents the integrity of the dishes of Pampanga. So he created the degustation of different dishes of Kapampangan. I also uh, brought them to Aching Lilian. Mm-hmm. Aching Lilian is the keeper of the heirloom recipes of Pampanga and she used to have, you know, cooking show back in the days. I asked her to do a cooking them of Panesillo de San Nicolas. I have the recipe in uh, Food Holidays. That's a 16th-century recipe. Basically, the oldest cookie documented that they were taught by uh, Spanish to the Philippines.
0: And so when the Spanish guests that Klang was touring around from the Madrid Fusion Manila Festival, when they tasted this cookie, Klang says they got super excited about how closely it tasted and resembled their version of the St. Nicholas cookie. By the way, it's called that because of the St. Nicholas-inspired pattern imprinted onto the cookie with a wooden mold.
1: Those molds are beautiful. But it's different, the taste is different, because we're using arrowroot flour. Mm -hmm. So of course we customize it with what we have. Mm -hmm. And then I also did a demo of plantanillas. Plantanillas is basically... um... So this is something I had to look up.
0: Plantanillas is an old capampangan dessert that visually looks like this smooth little shiny hard shell taco with a colorful filling. I'm not kidding, (laughs) they're really cute. They're small enough that you can fit two into the palm of your hand, and the pastry, which is really more like a thick crepe, is this like really sunny yellow from all the egg yolks that are in it. And it's worth remembering that In the Philippines and in other Spanish colonies, it's almost a sure sign that when you see a lot of churches, that correlates to the number of egg yolk-based sweet treats produced in and around those regions. Because when the churches were being built, people needed a lot of egg whites uh, for mortar to, to hold the stones together. And so this is another example of a distinctly Filipino dessert that's rich in egg yolks. The filling itself is often made with coconut, either bukayo, which is grated coconut that's fried in syrup, or uh, just straight-up coconut syrup called latik.
1: To make plantanillas, you uh, have a big wok, you boil water and uh, sugar, but not too thick to make it uh, syrup, you know, just to sweeten it. And then you have like... And basically you drop the egg yolk pastry
0: into this thin syrup, just enough to let the sweetness seep in, and then you take it out and cup it in the palm of your hand to shape it into a half moon, and then stuff it with the filling.
1: You add pastillas in the middle, you fold it, and then you eat it. So there's a beautiful burst of uh, flavor and sweetness, the, and different layers of flavor and texture. When I do tours, it's curated I, and I also integrate the sense of history and culture in, in relation to the food and destination. So I would say that this um an academic tour in a fun way because I always make sure there's a sense of interaction. It's like a way of eating your history in a fun way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, something that is so interesting about it's its kind of my personal journey and the journey that I'm taking um, listeners on with me as well is that you know unfortunately this type of history isn't really taught in in schools yes. for example yes. so a lot of this discovery of like learning about uh, you know cooks that were in Intramuras that have been transported to Bulacan for example and Uh, Aching Lilian's heirloom recipes where she has these recipes from a 16th century-like era uh, and the arrowroot cookies. And it is such a good demonstration of how Filipino food adapts uh, to it over time, right? Not just in the sense na uh, yes, we're adapting the ingredients, like local ingredients, um, because that's what we have and that's what mm-hmm. is abundant. But also customizing the flavors to make mm-hmm. it uh, palatable and to, to match with the Filipino palate. Um, but that's what's really exciting because, say, you think about that, and the Philippines is so huge. Those are just two specific examples you've given. And then, you know, I,
1: I think, what else is there in the Philippines? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much to explore and we are 7,107 islands Mm -hmm. and we're just at the tip, yeah. Yeah. If you can describe in like three phrases or three
0: sets of words, like Uh what it is that drives you to kind of, to to be doing this, to be exploring the Philippines. Like what encourages you to keep looking for these types of stories and bringing these types of cuisines into the tours that you have. Mm
1: -hmm. For me, uh, basically, I want to rise from ignorance of not knowing my heritage. Mm-hmm. I want every Filipino to be proud of who they are. We are not the way we think we are because we are very rich, we are very rich people. And then, um, bring back the traditional culture, Filipino culture, through food.
0: Just to go back to food holidays a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. because I want to find out when you were putting that together, you know, obviously we're working with a lot of really talented writers in the Philippines. What was the process like of getting those writers to contribute and speaking with them and like kind of learning about the different specialties that were in the different regions?
1: It was crazy. (laughs) Um, In the beginning, of course, I had to ask for help and well not everybody said yes you know and then sometimes if you talk to them with so much passion they think you're you're mad you're like a mad what is this girl talking about this what i want to happen and all that not everybody understood me but there were some who did so i'll just capitalize on that i i think there's something about when you have passion and you share it to the world the universe will conspire to give everything what you want. So I met kindred spirits along the way who shares the same passion. And these are like culinary champions in their localities. And that's how we met and we bonded over food and stories. So that's why Food Holidays for me is a collector's edition because it brings together the uh, authority, the local culinary historians in every province that we featured. And it's not easy to tap them because this is not something that they do professionally. But you have to research and lead you to the right person who can talk about that topic comfortably and with authority and integrity, yeah. When I was doing the book, parang I was so exhausted. I was really exhausted. Because it entails so much budget also and I was just doing it on my own. I I burned all my money. But uh, there's that sense of fulfillment, eh? and you just know, you just believe. And I didn't know that there's such a thing as a, an international award-giving body, such as the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards. So the
0: story with the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards is that, in the lead-up to Madrid Fusion Manila, Klang was super busy getting things like the itineraries for those organizers that she took out, you know, set in place. In addition to putting the finishing touches on her book, Food Holidays, and just getting it printed and ready for the big event, it took a publisher from the Kitchen Bookstore based in Manila
1: to tell her about this award. He was so passionate, and I got hooked with uh, his emotions, and then he sent me an email. He said, Klang, you have to apply for this. You have to uh, send an entry. I said, what's that? I, I just uh, brush it off I didn't know And then one time I looked at it again And it's close to the deadline I said Let me give it a shot yeah. So I sent the application Right on the cut-off date Right on the cut-off date yeah. I didn't expect anything And then after a few months I got, uh, you know Formal email From Mr. Edward Quantfo The, the founder mm-hmm. And announcing that We are pleased to announce That you your award is like the national winner for culinary travel and my god i cried i really cried Mm -hmm. i really cried because um the book was reviewed by international panel of judges in the gastronomy world and that's like a very good recognition for me because i don't think we were even recognized by even the government and then suddenly there's an international award giving body giving us recognition so i really cried because um it took me so much to put together all those books. And then after that, so that's national category. And then it says that uh, you still have to compete for international category. And then, to cut the long story short, we competed with uh, other international books under the culinary travel category. And I'm proud to say that we were awarded as one of the best in the world. And I, I, I cried again. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> But I was very pure in terms of putting so much intention in bringing together good contents for the book. And that's also the reason why I have a TV show because I was stopped by the leading uh, satellite broadcast network to come up with a food and travel show inspired by my book, Food Holidays. And uh, it's a very interesting landscape for the Philippines also because it's not just me. Suddenly you see different personalities or different networks investing on food and travel shows. So, I think we're, we are getting there, we are getting there.
0: Napapansin
1: na have already noticed na. And I really believe that the Philippines is going to be the next big thing in terms of uh, culinary.
0: I mean, this is clearly something that I believe in too. So I asked Klang, where does she see food tourism going
1: in the Philippines? I think at this point, we're on the cusp of a gastronomy revolution. Because uh, there's now growing consciousness. There's already that fire. Now it's all about activation. I think I would like to say that we're going to arrive very soon. There are like consolidated efforts, like Miss Amy Bessa is fantastic. There are so many local champions and uh, there's no competition. In fact, it's a very good harmony for everyone to come together. And as I said, if you don't get so much support, if you believe that it's for a good cause, just do it. If you believe that it's for a good cause, should not chase after money. Money should chase the cost. You'll be able to raise that if you have a good product, you have good intention. Right now, actually, I'm on fire, and I'm now working on the second edition of Philippine Food Holidays, so I'm gonna brand it as Philippine Food Holidays. I'm gonna release that for next year. And in fact, I'm planning to do a US road show in uh, San Francisco, LA, and uh, New York, or I'm going to do a series of pop-up dinners. It's an invitational pop-up dinner for local media. And I'm asking the support of the Department of Tourism for that. So they uh, have agreed. Because if they don't really have a solid program, sometimes all you have to do is create something and get partners, get partners. Even if it's difficult, if you believe in it, just keep on doing it until it materializes.
0: That's really encouraging. Because, yeah.
1: because there's more to share, there's more, there's more to share. And for that, my main purpose is to uh, have a channel for people to know that Philippines is such an exciting destination for food holidays. Mm-hmm. The concept of, I guess, going
0: someplace to travel for food, it never really, even when I try to explain to my mm-hmm. friends, for example, that you're going to visit someplace just to eat the food, mm-hmm. sometimes people still go like, really like that's all you're gonna do you're gonna go for the food and I'm like no well that's the the purpose of the your visit there is driven by the food but um, as you're saying earlier it it has a trickle-down effect absolutely and if the uh, tour uh, companies that you arrange your visits with are structured uh, similarly to jeepney tours where it's like a holistic thing right it's not just by by the the visitors or the tourists going there it is pumping money into the local economy Mm -hmm. and hopefully if there's that consciousness that Mm -hmm. you're um uplifting the the livelihoods Mm -hmm. of like the local communities in a sustainable Mm -hmm. way um i think the people are really into that and that's something that is really like attractive for Mm -hmm. people
1: (laughs) and i'm happy like for you you have like a dedicated uh, podcast just purely on exploring Filipino kitchen so you're a local champion you're a fantastic voice for everyone yeah that's that's where um,
0: I guess my fire is from is that you know sometimes I feel like a bit of a traitor because I my family left the Philippines and I never really got to explore I pretty much just lived in Manila my whole life but never really got to explore even close places like Bulacan that's okay. only like several yeah. hours away from here yeah. yeah. but uh, now that there is more of an awareness Mm -hmm. of of that type of food culture existing and uh, really being able to tell those stories of the people who have um, you know dying arts like Mm -hmm. the burlesque de pastillas only by visiting them and like showing people that there is like a market for this kind of thing uh, hopefully we can keep that going Mm -hmm. in that sense Sincere thanks to Clan Garcia, who met with me in Manila for this interview. Earlier this year, she took a number of Filipino-American chefs on a culinary tour of the Philippines. And from what I hear, and as I hope, it was unforgettable. Music for this episode is by David Seste, Eric and McGill, Podington Bear, Squire Tuck, and Blue Dot Sessions. Visit ExploringFilipinoKitchens.com for past episodes and... Please subscribe and tell a friend if you enjoyed this. I hope the last hour has encouraged you to take a closer look at going on a food holiday to the Philippines. Maraming salamat and thank you for listening.